Hey guys, this is Jim, and welcome to the Holmes Politicast. Uh, I'll be your host today. Uh, I have five, five news stories that I want to talk about today. And if we have time, we'll talk a little bit about the 2020 election coming up. But we'll get right into the news. Uh, the first story is close, the first couple stories are pretty close to home. Um, it's in the Grand Haven Tribune. It's by Megan Haas, and it says that the musical fountain is coming back to Grand Haven. Uh, the article goes on to say, after a delayed start to the season, the Grand Haven musical fountain may soon entertain local residents and guests. The city council heard from members of the musical fountain committee during its meeting, and they approved shows being hosted at the Lynn Sherwood Waterfront Stadium. You know, I didn't, this is off topic, but I didn't really know that they had a name, the Lynn Sherwood Waterfront Stadium. I, I didn't really know what it was called. Um, they said Andy Cawthon uh, is the committee member, and he said they received many requests for the musical fountain, which usually begins in May. However, because of the uh, COVID situation, it was pushed back. So they're gonna they're gonna go ahead and have it according to this article. They're gonna uh, one of the ideas is they're going to limit the uh, limiting attendance to the shows. The ideas include running the musical fountain on nights which have less attendance than others, requiring masks and social distancing, not doing the themed shows, limiting publicity, and more. Uh, they said, of course, if the stadium gets too crowded or people fail to adhere to the social distancing or mask requirements, they could always terminate the program. Um, so anyway, it's not a very long article. It's in the Grand Haven Tribune, but um, it'll be nice to get that back going. I I haven't been down in Grand Haven for a while at night, so I didn't realize that they weren't doing it, but it makes sense that they wouldn't be. Uh, but anyway, there's lots to work out. I, but, Anyway, I don't have really too much of an opinion about that. It'll be nice to get back to normal, though. Uh, and speaking of getting back to normal, also in the Grand Haven Tribune, this article is by Matt DeYoung. And it says here that the Grand Haven Area Public Schools Board votes to push back start of in-person learning to September 8th. Uh, the students who select in-person learning will now start the school year on September 8th. And this was following a three and a half hour special board meeting held uh, over the weekend. The board voted unanimously to approve a plan presented by Superintendent Andy Ingle, which asked parents to select either in-person or virtual learning for their students. Since that time, the board was bombarded with emails, mostly from members of the Grand Haven Education Association who weren't comfortable with returning to in-person learning. So basically over the weekend, a lot of people showed up, mostly teachers and a lot of parents and students. And the article says they spoke passionately um, and they were pretty divided. Half saying that 
they wanted to return to school as usual, and others insisting that social distancing made such a return unsafe, or the lack of social distancing. Um, so, board member Nicole Stack made a motion to push back the start until September 8th, I, I would assume, because they don't quite know how they're going to work this out. Um, so, uh, Stack then motioned to allow parents to reevaluate the decision to choose virtual or in-person learning, as many parents claimed. They felt rushed into making that decision, but the motion died due to a lack of support. Hmm. Well, that's it, it comes as a surprise to me because I really didn't think that we would have in-person learning at all this year. So um, this is a surprise. It's, a, it's a, a happy surprise that they're even talking about it. And like I said, I, I really didn't think it would happen, but... Um, <clears throat> So, I, I don't know who this quote is original with, but I, I read this, or I heard this not too long ago, in which somebody said, you know, there's a lot of questions about, you know, the teachers unions, some of them in different, in different areas, different states, talking about going on strike and other things and calling in sick and things. Um, I, I guess in, uh, in Michigan, actually, you can't, uh, you're not allowed to strike because it's a right-to-work state. So they, it's really a strike, but they're not calling it a strike. They're calling it like a, a sick-in or something else. I can't remember. I saw an interview with the, uh, the president of the, of the teachers' union, and that's what, you know, she called for basically a general strike and was reminded that they can't do that legally. And then she backed down and said, well, you know, strike's the wrong word, you know, we just have a national day where we don't, or, you know, we don't work or whatever. Um, so it's, it's a strike. It's just, you know, it's like that old Shakespeare phrase, you know, rose by any other name is still a rose. Uh, it's a strike, whether they call it a strike or not is irrelevant. A lot of people are bringing up what's good for the teachers, what's good for the schools, what's good for in politics, whether the governor should allow schools to reopen or not, whether that helps or hurts her. <clears throat> the, real issue that nobody's talking about is what's good for the students. And not many people are talking about what is best for the kids. And that should be the priority that we're looking at here. Um, it seems to me that they could, there could be a compromise here. I, you know, again, I'm just running off the mouth. I have no expertise in this area, but it seems like you could have in-person learning for kids who are parents who want that. And then you could also have a virtual classroom, uh, um, you know, where you have a live stream of the class, you know, so kids can stay home or, or some kind of a hybrid of the two. I mean, I know they do that in other countries. Uh, there's a lot of students like in Japan and things that um, do virtual learning. I also know that uh, I, I looked into once teaching English in other countries and in many of those countries, uh, this was a couple of years ago, you do it over the internet. So I wouldn't, if I was teaching English like to Chinese students or um, Japanese students or whatever, I would uh, just do it over the internet. And, you know, I would be in their classroom and I could teach them and you could do interactions and things. So there's 
really, I don't see any reason why you couldn't do something along those lines, have a limited classroom, you know, for the people who want their kids to have in school and, and then other kids could be virtually online and, and participate in the class and ask questions and, you know, or they could have a separate teaching. I mean, I know a lot of homeschool students who are very fine kids and they're very smart and they do learning online. Uh, so I, you know, it seems like there's many alternatives here, but I know that I, I mean, I, I, I imagine there's financial concerns and stuff like that, you know, that, uh, you know, some of the kids wouldn't have access to computers and things. And, you know, there'd be questions as to whether or not the school needs to provide those. If, if, you know, if that is what they're offering, then they, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just saying, it just seems like there could be some kind of compromise here. You don't have to keep all the kids out of school and you don't have to rush them all back into school uh, because our, our schools, frankly, are not, have not been built for social distancing. They're just not, the classrooms are not made for it. The class sizes aren't made for it, the desks and everything. So it would, it would, it would require a lot of renovation and, and things. So, so anyway, there's, I'm sure there's things they can do. Um, to figure figure this out, but um, but that's good news though that they're at least talking about going back to school. The third story is a Michigan story, and it's uh, kind of a tongue-in-cheek story, I think, because it's it's um, it's from M Live, and the headline reads, and this is the best part of it: a bald eagle attacks the state's $950 drone in the UP and sends it to the bottom of Lake Michigan. I've seen a lot of comments about this on Twitter from my libertarian friends who just find it hilarious, you know, that uh, in this case, the uh, the drone belonged to the state of Michigan, and it's it, it's for environmental reasons. It, it documents the shoreline erosion and damage in the Upper Peninsula so that it can better uh, figure out how fast, you know, things are deteriorating and what they can do to solve them. So it's not like a, a, a spying drone or something, but still it's just, it's a funny story about the bald eagle, America's symbol of freedom and liberty, taking out a drone that's by the state, you know? Um, but anyway, there's not much to the story, honestly. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just, it's pretty self-explanatory that, you know, there was a drone flying up there and a bald eagle came and attacked it and destroyed it. And, um, they can't find it. It's at the bottom of Lake Michigan somewhere and they've been looking for it. And, but, uh, it's just a funny story. Uh, I found quite amusing. Uh, just the symbol, I don't know, the symbol of Liberty and it's just crazy. Um, you know, taking out a drone. All right. This report is out of Chicago. This is something we've talked about many times on our show. And if, and if you know Tom and I personally, you've heard us talk about it in person, probably too much. This article is from the daily wire, a a great, great, uh, online, uh, news service. Uh, anyway, it's by Emily 
Zanati, and it's from August 16th of this year. And it says, the, the headline reads, Chicago looters were a mix of college students, out-of-work parents, and convicted felons, not neighborhood activists. Um, and I don't know, I didn't, I don't know, I, I didn't talk about it on my show, but uh, a week or two ago, you had these riots in downtown Chicago where um, stores were broken into on the Magnificent Mile. Uh, a lot of looting took place. And the mayor uh, and the chief of police came out and said that these attacks were in retaliation for a police shooting that had happened a few days prior to this. And so now we're starting to get more of the story. The Daily Wire is reporting this, but they're getting their news from the Chicago Tribune. Um and here's, here's what it says. Looters and rioters who caused an estimated $60 million in damages to Chicago's downtown were not activists protesting a shooting in the city's Inglewood neighborhood, the Chicago Tribune reports, despite Chicago Black Lives Matter protests last week that condoned and even encouraged the unrest and begged Chicago police to release more than 100 people arrested, calling them political prisoners. Instead, the Chicago Tribune reports, the looters and rioters were mostly, quote, college students, out-of-work parents, and convicted felons, unquote, who took advantage of an out-of-control situation to help themselves to thousands of dollars in designer merchandise. Not a single one of those arrested Sunday night even mentioned the Inglewood shooting that reportedly sparked the unrest in their, in their arguments to the bond court. And none of them, none of them, call the city's Inglewood neighborhood home. After hundreds of people looted stores on the Mag Mile and elsewhere downtown, 43 defendants appeared before judges this week, charged with felonies. An odd mix of peer-pressured college students, out-of-work parents, and convicted felons, the Tribune noted. But none of them, it appeared, were from Inglewood, even though Chicago police say the widespread looting had its beginning with the police shooting there Sunday afternoon. In fact, no one who made statements in court even mentioned the incident. Most of the defendants received low bonds, few in excess of $100, even though many targeted luxury boutiques like Gucci and Dior and high-end stores like Apple. Chicago's branch of the Black Lives Matter organization, though, held a protest last Monday with at least one speaker claiming that looting was a form of reparations and that those who pilfered thousands in high-dollar merchandise were simply taking their share from corporations that had looted their fortunes. So that Sunday night, in yet another protest, activists held a banner that read, Loot It Back. The rationalization for looting comes as a surprise to those who actually live in the mostly black Inglewood neighborhood. According to the Chicago Tribune, residents have flatly rejected claims that looting was justified by a police-involved shooting that took place in the neighborhood on Sunday when Chicago Police Department responded to 911 calls about an armed man allegedly threatening neighbors. While the mayor and the city's top cop have suggested the looting was sparked by the police shooting in Inglewood, there is nothing in the court record to support this, the Chicago Tribune says. 
Activists and residents of the South Side neighborhood have pushed back on those suggestions, and relatives of the man shot by police have said they did, they did not know about the looting and do not condone it. As the Daily Wire reported, some Inglewood residents even confronted Black Lives Matter's activists last week, telling them to leave the neighborhood. None of these expletives are going to be here tomorrow. That's why I got a problem, one resident told media after telling the protesters to return to their homes. They didn't let the community know. They didn't put flyers on people's doors. If they would have gotten something and sided with the police, who's got to deal with it tomorrow? The community, not them. They'll be somewhere sipping sangria somewhere. I'm telling you like it is. This guy is exactly right. This, um, first, let me just say, there's a couple points on this. The first is, this guy's exactly right. These people come into a town and they create havoc and incite violence. And then they go home to their safe neighborhoods. They're not doing this in their own neighborhood. They're going to someone else's neighborhood. It's like going to someone else's house, throwing a kegger, leaving trash everywhere, and then saying, well, party's over. I'm going home. It's your problem. You're going to have to deal with the aftermath. That And that is like, and that's what, what these people are saying. Had had this turned violent, had it turned into a shootout between police and protesters, who would have to deal with that? It's the people who live in that neighborhood. It's their children who are going to have to be dodging bullets in the crossfire. They're going to be locked up in their homes because some lunatics came into their area and started breaking into buildings and, and creating riots and looting. And they're going to go home to their nice, safe homes and it's going to be the people in Inglewood, this black community, this black neighborhood, that is going to have to deal with the aftermath of the problem with the police and 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 the bad the bad uh, feelings between the police and the and the community, and they're the ones who are going to have the reputation, you know, everyone in the country when the re- when this is reported that Inglewood erupted in riots, it's not going to say people not from Inglewood came to the city and created havoc, it's going to say the people of England that rioted. And they're the ones who are going to be slandered, as everyone says, you know, makes derogatory comments about all oh, those horrible people in Inglewood, those those black people down there who just, you know, they're rioting and they're just crazy. And what this guy is saying is, hey, that's not us. We don't even want them here. They're not one of us. You know, and, and the article makes the point that these are, these are mostly white people, white college students. They're, they're out of work parents. They're, they're, they're convicted felons. They came into our area and they're creating havoc under the name of Black Lives Matter and, and hiding behind, oh, well, this is just justified because the police shooting, you know, and so we, you know, this is our way of expressing our anger. And not one of them is from the area. Not one of them, I doubt, according to this article, I mean, it it seems that not, none of them were even aware of the shooting. Um, the people in the neighborhood were not, um, I mean, I'm not saying they weren't upset. I mean, anytime a human life is taken, I'm sure, you know, people might have been bothered, but they were not rioting. They were not going to the streets and, and breaking into buildings. You know, they, they're minding their own business, just trying to lead their lives and live their lives. And, you know, these people came in there and then just try to hide behind it. And, it. and it bothers me. The mayor, I think her name's Lightfoot, Lori Lightfoot, maybe. Um, uh, she... You know, never let the truth get in the way of your, you know, 
political view here and, and, and what you're trying to create. I mean, you don't want the truth to get in the way. You know, she's out there saying that this is this is the kind of thing we're going to expect until until uh, we do something about police brutality and and, and uh, you know, institutional racism and all these other things. And until we understand Black Lives Matter and, you know, knowing very well, knowing very well that that this had nothing to do with that. But that's the party line that she wants to take. And it's not going to let a little thing like the truth get in the way of that. Um, and in here, Chicago has one of the um, worst police departments, them in Los Angeles. And, and, and I want to make this clear when I say they're one of the worst police departments. I'm not talking about the everyday police officers who work the beat, who, who are brave, who are doing the job that most of us wouldn't want to do going out and confronting criminals and, and, and trying to keep law and order on the streets and, you know, and are risking um, their lives and things. I'm not talking about them. They're good people. They're, they're honorable people. They're brave people. I have much respect for them. But I'm talking about the higher-ups, the mayors of these cities, the, uh, the top levels, the bureaucracy of the police department. Um, Chicago has for years, like I said, the, the higher ups, um, have had a very bad, uh, reputation in the way that they run the police departments. And you remember just a year or two ago, seems like decades when the actor Jesse Smollett came out with his alleged racial attack with the noose claiming that white kids, you know, tried to kill him and, uh, because he was black and the mayor and the chief of police both came out and defended Jesse Smollett and, and, um, you know, the, the cops on the beat, you know, the ones who actually were out there broke ranks and said, we don't, we don't believe this. This is not what happened, but it continued until they, until they were able to find video of the alleged attackers and, and things. And they found out they were black and they were friends of Jesse Smollett and, you know, and they were able to find the video. Then, then the chief of police and them, you know, said, "Oh, we're going to charge Justice Mullet with uh, a crime here," but they were willing to go along with the hoax because it pushed their political agenda. So, um, so again, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me when I say that the police departments, as a whole, in the upper levels of like Los Angeles and Chicago, are very known for being somewhat corrupt, very political, very. Um, not, not searching for the truth in many ways, uh, covering up the truth to push a certain agenda. Um, again, I'm not at all talking about the average police officer. You know, uh, you know, I, I don't want to put out a blanket statement and saying that every single one of them is just pure as the white-driven snow, but by and large, the vast, vast majority of them are good, decent people who just, they're trying to do a tough job, you know, under really tough circumstances in those cities. And uh, they're not getting a lot of help from from above. And I'm talking about the mayors and uh, the chief of police and things like that. Um, so anyway, this is something that you know we've been talking about for a while. That um, a lot of black people in this country are getting slandered and libeled in in writing in other places, and they're being slandered on 
television on the internet uh, because of their uh, rioting and their and their behavior, looting, rioting, arson, um, and things. And the truth is that the problem isn't coming from the black community. It is from these anti-American um, nefarious groups and, you know, that live in the shadows and they come out at night and create their havoc and destruction. And then by daylight, they're gone and they leave these black communities even worse off than they were before. Uh, some of them losing their homes, some of them losing their businesses and Plus, they have a lot of Americans who now think that they got what they deserved if they, you know, they're the ones who created this mess. It's their problem. And they didn't create the mess. They're not, they're not the ones out there trying to get, you know, uh, Paw Patrol canceled. And they're not out there trying to get rid of Aunt Jemima and Mrs. Butterworth and, you know, and trying to ban Gone with the Wind and the Dukes of Hazard and things. I mean, they're just living their life. And these other groups are out there creating havoc and destruction and mayhem and then they're getting and these innocent people are getting the blame for it so <clears throat> i just want you to keep that in mind you know that there's going to be more to the story when you hear about these things i mean they're horrible i'm not i'm not condoning the looting and saying it's not that big a deal i'm saying we just have to remember to put in the proper spec perspective who's to blame for these things and it's not always the, the narrative the media is trying to portray or sometimes extremely right-wing groups um, who want to use it as an example to hinder uh, progress in the black community by saying that these people are just savages, they burn their own houses, they don't care about anything, you know, they're not, you know, again, just like the place, the vast majority of black people in this country are good, decent, honorable people. I mean, you're always going to find some that, that aren't in any group, but a vast majority of them are good are good good people. They love their country and they're what um, Richard Nixon and Donald Trump calls the silent majority. They're the ones who aren't out there making a lot of racket. They're the ones who just work their jobs and live their life and try to be good people. And, you know, and you don't hear about them. You hear about the bad seeds, the ones who are creating the problems. And there are far more of the good people out there than there are the bad, but just the nature of our, of our news system the bad ones are the ones they talk about. They're not going to do news stories about people who just go to work all week, go to church on Sunday and, you know, and, and try to spend some time with their kids in between. I mean, that's not a news story. Why are they going to cover that? They're going to cover people burning down buildings and shooting other people and protesting. And and I'm talking about the violent protesting, not, not the silence protesting and things like that. Um, right. The, this story uh, you've heard about it a little bit. I know Tom talked about it several months ago, um, and we have an update on this. It's also from the Daily Wire, and this one really, this one really upsets me. And I don't know how much I'm going to be able to talk about it, only because um, I try not to be real emotional on the show, and I don't want to just yell and scream. So I might have to just stop after I give you the story because I don't want to turn it into the amount of anger that I feel about this, but um, the court uh, this is about the Save James um, I had never heard that phrase before, but you might be familiar with it but I'll go into detail in a minute as to what this is about. The court scraps a past ruling and 
now says that a mom can transition her son even though her their dad is opposed to it. This is an article by Amanda Prestigiacamo, and it's in the Daily Wire. Last week, Judge Mary Brown, appointed to the Save James Texas case in January, reportedly scrapped a past ruling that allowed Jeff Younger joint conservative conservatorship, anyway, uh, guardianship, over his eight-year-old son, James Younger, whom Jeff's ex-wife, Dr. Ann Georgilus, claims is a transgender girl named Luna. Now, Ann can reportedly enroll James as Luna in school without the father's consent, and Mr. Younger will have to pay $5,000 a month so the child can attend pro-trans counseling as well as a $10,000 retainer required by the counselor. All right, I'm starting to already get triggered here. Um, according to court documents, Jeff wanted his two sons homeschooled. Jeff was awarded joint guardianship last year, meaning he'd have to consent to parenting choices concerning James before his ex-wife moves forward and vice versa. The father claims that Georgilus has been telling his biological son that he is a girl since he was three years old, and that James, the eight-year-old boy, wants to be a boy when he is with his father. The so-called doctor, uh, Dr. Dementia, Georgilis, claims that her son identifies as a girl on his own and is transgender. The Save James account is run by a supporter of Mr. Younger and a journalist in contact with the father. And, oh, this is on Facebook. Jeff, the father, is not allowed to talk about this because of a gag order by Judge Kim Cooks in October of last year. Uh, Captioning a photo of Jeff hugging his boys, James and Jude, a Facebook post from Save James said in part on Tuesday, James and Jude did not have a victory in court today. Judge Mary Brown has condemned James and Jude to a life of therapy, confusion, and abuse without even having a hearing. There are no other words for what has happened today. Judge Brown, the post continues, has forced James to live as Luna in a school surrounded by teachers and therapists who does not and will not acknowledge that the boy has said multiple times to multiple people that he wants to be a boy and hates being forced to be a girl by his mother. She has forced Jude into a stressful existence of constant lies and misery as he watches his brother get destroyed before him without any hope for an end to this madness. Anne won this battle without even a hearing, the Post says. There was a scheduled hearing set on August 11th, but the judge canceled it. Um, The Post did note that there is a special evidentiary hearing scheduled for September, although the exact time and date is not known yet. Um, There is a sneaking suspicion that this hearing will be used to solidify Anne's dominance over Jeff, according to Facebook. Um, I, like I said, (laughs) I, I can't even, this, this just, 
this just makes me absolutely irate. I know maybe it doesn't sound like it. I'm trying to hold my anger and my sadness and my frustration in. I cannot believe... I don't know what kind of a mother could do that to her child. I mean, this kid is eight years old. And I, I just... I just can't believe that. And then on top of it, not only does she want this lunacy, which is interesting that she wants to name um, James Luna because she is a lunatic. Um, not only does she want to do this and destroy him, but then she wants her ex-husband to pay a total of $15,000 to have his son turned into a girl, force him against his will to pay $15,000. Um, uh, I guess you can look up Save James on Facebook if you're interested. I know that they're looking for donations because he doesn't have the money, first of all, and he needs to fight this, and it, uh, he needs help. Also, if you're a praying person, we need you to pray for this. I mean, I know this thing happens all the time, but we don't know the person. Um, well, I, I won't say all the time, but I know these things are happening around the country to people we don't know. And and I don't want to pick out one person over everybody else, but this is the one that we know about. And uh, so this is the young family, and, uh, and it's really, really tough. I mean, on the father, I mean, it's... I would it, would, it would be horrible for me as a dad to see this happen and not be able to do anything to stop it. And I know it's got to be horrible for the two brothers, the one who has to experience this, and for the other brother who also is stuck watching this happen to his brother, watching the torment that it's causing and seeing the kids at school mocking him and all, you know, I mean... This thing isn't going to end well. Either if this continues, James is either going to kill his mother or kill himself when he gets older. I mean, it's going to be horrible. This this kind of thing will not end well, and it. I, I just don't have any more words. I gotta stop that one. Just it just makes me. It, it really hurts me and hurts my heart and hurts my soul and I can't I can't I can't talk about that one anymore that's just too much for me um, and the last story uh, I want to talk about is um, a fact check it's from the libertarian Republic it's a, a website that I follow it's run by uh, a guy named Austin Peterson who He's a friend of mine. Um, we're not good friends. We don't pal around. He lives in Missouri. Um, but we talk quite a bit on uh, Twitter. We follow each other and we talk quite a bit. And he's a really good guy. Him and Ben Shapiro are probably two of my favorite political analysis. Um, Austin Peterson actually ran for president on the Libertarian ticket four years ago. Obviously, he didn't win the nomination. But um, he's a really decent man. And he's a pro-life libertarian. A lot of libertarians are pro-choice, not necessarily because, more because they're anti-government than they are 
pro-abortion, but they just don't believe that the government should be able to regulate um, things you do. But Austin Peterson is a pro-life libertarian. Uh, he's just a really decent, all-around good guy. Um, definitely follow him on social media. I don't know if he has a Facebook page, but I know he has a Twitter account, and he's one of the writers of the Libertarian Republic. He also has a podcast on KW, KWOS, um, and I'm sure you can uh, find it anywhere where podcasts are available. So there's, um, but he does a fact check here, um, because uh, the last few weeks we've been hearing a lot about from the uh, from the left political left about Trump trying to steal the election and trying to destroy mail-in voting so that he can win. Um, and recently there was uh, a picture by taken by a guy named Mark Delaney um, at Mark Delaney says that's his Twitter handle and he put it up here of uh, a truck uh, a white truck that I see the picture here it's a white truck it's got some writing on the side but I can't make it out I don't know if it's a government truck or what but it's a flatbed truck and you see a bunch of mailboxes put in the back of it and in the picture he took you actually see the driver out of his vehicle and picking up a mailbox from the side and putting it on the lift so you can put it into the back of the vehicle. And his caption when he says is, please share this picture far and wide. Trump is trying to steal the election. He is gutting the USPS to make it more difficult for people to vote by mail. Here in Oregon, that's our only option. This demands attention. And he uh, sends it to Oregon Governor Brown. He tags her in the, in the thing. So um, Austin Peterson decided to research this and looked into it to find out, is Trump stealing mailboxes in, in Oregon? And this is uh, basically what he says. He found, he talked to the Oregon news station, KATU, which is, uh, I, I don't know, it just says news station. I assume it's radio, but I guess it could be a TV station. Um, and they investigated the incident. Uh, you know, and they got back to him. It's just a real simple answer here that, um, that these are routine replacements of old postal boxes by the United States Postal Services themselves. From the KATU article, he says, so KATU dug into it and found out that the post office is the one removing the boxes to replace them because they're old. A spokesperson said they've taken down four mailboxes in Portland and more than a dozen in Eugene. They plan to remove more mailboxes from around Portland in the coming weeks. They will be replacing them with uh, newer newer versions. So he, you know, so that that claim that the Trump administration is removing postal boxes, postal boxes, implying he is trying to place barriers to absentee voting, is false. Um, I'm sure all of my reader, all of our viewers knew this already. I don't believe probably any of them fell for this, but but this way, if if a friend or a family member makes that argument that he is stealing post box, post office boxes and and things in order to keep them uh, pe people from voting, you can say this is this has been debunked that. Um, from the post office itself. They admit they're the ones taking them. They, and 
I read this um, somewhere else. I don't know. I'd have to find it. I'm not sure where it was, but they said there's there's two reasons. This article only mentions one, but they said in there's some areas because because uh, of the abundance of email, Twitter, you know, all the social media, Facebook, people are are using the United States Postal Service less. Also, and there are areas where there are two or three or four post office uh, mailboxes right in the same area, like, you know, just on one block. There's a whole bunch of them. And that is also the other reason. Some of them, they're old and dilapidated and need to be replaced. And some of them, they are actually removing them permanently. But that's because there's not a need for four post post mailboxes, you know, on one corner or on one block. Uh, because mail has, has gone down. People just aren't sending letters and things like they used to. I mean, there's still a need for some, but we don't need as much as they they had. And so they are removing them, but it has nothing to do with the Postmaster General. It has nothing to do with Trump's appointee. It has nothing to do with trying to slow down the mail um, to keep people from voting so he can, he can steal re-election or anything like that. So I just want to let you guys know, I know most of you wouldn't believe that anyway, if you heard it, but you will come across people on Facebook, uh, any social media sites, you might see them at Thanksgiving or, well, Thanksgiving will be after the election, but you may see them at events, friends and family members who are going to argue that this is going on and you can let them know. And so anyway, this is from the, um, what did I say? Oh, the uh, Libertarian Republic and... You can check it out there. It's got a lot of great stories, not just this one. Plus, also, KATU, the news station in Oregon, also has, has talked about this. So it's uh, it's not just um, Trump campaign propaganda that you're spreading. This is actually confirmed from sources other than just Republicans, independent news stations, and the Postal Service themselves talking about this so um okay well uh we're just a few minutes over so i guess we'll end it there um we'll we'll have more more time next week and as the weeks go on to talk about the uh the 2020 election so um hope you all have a great week and i'll see you here again real soon be sure to tune into tom's show and you know comment like subscribe Tell your friends about it. Um, you know, uh, yeah. So hope to hear from you soon. All right. See ya.